Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. Like one of us is in the thick of it, that's Laura, she's just, she's in the trenches, she's going to everything, she's like taking all the bad news, she's taking everything on the chin, she's taking... She's taken the brunt of everything. She's had the surgery. She's delivered the baby. She's carried him. She's dealt with all the problems, all the regular problem stuff with pregnancy, all the like the sickness and the tiredness and the fatigue and the sore back and the sore legs and all of that, all of that normal stuff. And it's just this just layers of problems. And now he's in the intensive care unit. And I have, I have no idea what that means. No information, nothing. Hi folks, uh, welcome along to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy in the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Sue Murphy and I'm usually joined by Suzanne Kane and Alison Curtis, but unfortunately they can't be with me today. So I'm joined by the wonderful Linda Kelly, who will be talking us through what happened at the March for Maternity and talking through this week's episode. Um, this is a podcast that was inspired by an Instagram post which asked whether anyone out there would have would tell the real stories of those who were affected by COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals and we stood up and said we wanted to tell those stories and hopefully we can give people around the country the right space to share their experiences and talk about something which definitely just shouldn't be t- taboo. There are stories that deserve to be shouted about and not whispered and we'll hear from someone who's been affected in a different way every week. From women who had apparently normal births on their own to partners and healthcare workers. Okay, so this week's episode focuses on the partner, the important partner, and the reason probably that we've we've come to this point at this stage, which is just partners being left outside the building, um, no support for the women who are inside, who are in labour, who've been suffering. And James's story um is is it's very difficult to listen to in a lot of ways because I like for me, I think the how close she was to being so v- very gravely ill and him being kicked out 20 minutes later. So what did you think of this week's episode or what do you think it says about the, the issues we're facing, Ninda? It is very difficult to listen to because you think to yourself, like the whole point of a health service is that there's care. People want to be cared for and people want that care to be empathetic and they want it to be compassionate, whether we're in a pandemic or not. And the fact that you can have a situation whereby somebody goes through a very, very difficult medical procedure um, in this instance around a section and complications in the operation and all that, um, but really in any of the... Um, in any of the medical settings um, and then they're, they don't have that compassion and they don't have that care and they don't have that empathy and particularly for the person like in a couple uh, and I think you know not every partner is in is in a romantic relationship but for a lot of people they are and the impact that has then to be separated from the person you love at that point when they are so incredibly vulnerable and you know that they need you more now than at any other time in their lives and you're told to go out the door and you're told to leave them like 
there that's one of the things we've been saying right throughout this campaign is there is no recognition from the HSE, no recognition from the minister around how devastating that is for couples and for families. Yeah, and like for for me, some of the the talk around this this week has been like, why can't women just get on with this and just have and it just. You know, there's that kind of like old 1950s, 1960s thinking of, well, the woman goes in to have the baby and that's it. And what's what like, why doesn't she just get on with it? And it fundamentally removes the partner from the relationship with the child. Like this isn't I, I keep saying this, that my partner, my husband is not a visitor. He is the child's dad. He is the parent. And that impact that they have of removing them for the first few days is devastating. Absolutely. And you can't ever get it back either. Like my husband will never get back the three days he missed with our daughter. And I know particularly he adored those first few days uh, with our first child. He would come to the hospital at seven o'clock in the morning and he wouldn't leave until 11 p.m. that night because that's what the hours were in the hospital at the time. And he would spend the whole day doing as much skin to skin trying to mind me and it's an incredible bonding journey and I think we're so far past those really old-fashioned gender roles within families now and the institutions haven't caught up so you know you have this entire generation of people now creating families and having children and they want an egalitarian approach to parenting. They want partners to have equal status and standing within their family dynamic. And then you have all of the institutions like the HSE and the government saying, jog on there, you're not important. You know, you're just an inconvenience. Yeah. You're totally unessential. And I think what is really, really empowering about this campaign and what was really, really empowering about the march yesterday is that we are saying no way. That is not acceptable to us. That is not the standard of care that we want and we will not accept it and you have to sort it out. And that is something really special. Yeah. And like for him as well, like we actually talked a little bit after the podcast, me and James, because he was saying, I just find it really hard that women's health care, like, you know, she has to fight for answers. People weren't telling her things. I would get told everything and I wasn't getting told stuff. And I have spoken about that before, how I had to send my partner out to a midwife to say what the hell is happening and she can't look after her child. There is a basic, (laughs) basic thing missing from women's healthcare where we're not explaining to women what's happening. We're not taking care of them. Like, the theme for these podcasts, and I don't know if you feel the same, is not just around the restrictions, because obviously that's a big thing. And once you get that removed, is the care of women that has been so substandard for so long. Absolutely. And I think it's like, I don't know if this happens to anybody else, but, you know, whenever I'm sick and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I must go to the GP or something's wrong. I always, after I make the appointment, but before I go, I am racked with sort of, am I really that sick? Are they going to tell me my symptoms don't exist? And you just automatically feel that you're not going to be listened to, that you're not going to be believed. And even right before COVID hit, I was 13 or in 13 or 14 weeks pregnant and I'd just come out of really horrendous morning sickness and I started to feel sick again. And I had a pain in my side and I my GP sent me to the hospital 
and because she couldn't rule out that it wasn't my appendix and all day long in the a &E, where my partner was with me at the start of February 2020 the nurse and the doctor were trying to tell me it's definitely not your appendix like you'd be much much sicker it's definitely not your appendix what happened at 11 o'clock that night Sue I was on an operating theater having emergency surgery to get my appendix removed while I was pregnant and so there is just such a culture of not believing women, yep. of not centering women in their medical care, even down to, you know, if anybody reads or any of the sort of the institutional sex of medical research, lots of the problems around the misinformation that happened around the COVID vaccine, around fertility and around periods is because the researchers didn't try to capture changes in menstrual cycles. It's not that the COVID vaccine causes infertility. That has been absolutely and robustly, um, you know, revealed as total misinformation for people. But the sexism around the research is real. Yeah. And so I'm really glad now they're coming around full circle and they're actually capturing that information. But... As somebody said at the march yesterday, why are we here again, always having to fight, always having to tell our stories just to get the basic health care we deserve? Yeah. yeah. And that like we should really talk about the march because yesterday was the march for maternity that was brilliantly organized by everyone involved, including yourself, fair play. And I definitely thought that as well there was one stage where I think at, at, at by the time it was the third speaker I was like these people are bearing their souls on a stage to get change why is this happening and I was so raging that somebody has to go so public with what has happened to them with their terrible heartbreaking stories to get any kind of change but it did feel like there was just such a, do you know what, we're not, we're just not going to take this anymore. Absolutely. It was so empowering to be at the march yesterday. It was really emotional and at times it was very difficult because people were talking about very difficult stories. But if I had to kind of describe it in one word, I think it was empowering. But also Emma said it very eloquently yesterday and I won't do her words just, but yesterday was history making. Because yesterday wasn't about kind of responding to a scandal or responding to a very yeah. tragic set of circumstances as we have had to do in the past. But it was actually about saying, do you see the bar that you've set and how you've set it so low? We are not willing to accept that. And you have to do better as the institution, as the health service, as the decision makers. And I think that was so incredibly powerful. I have never seen so many politicians at an event. I genuinely haven't at a protest. It was incredible. Um, and as well, I think, to see as well the through line to this issue, part of the reason I have always felt why the maternity restrictions have never gotten the the attention they've deserved is because the cabinet subcommittee on COVID is all male dominated. So it's six men. Yeah. And they have never experienced what it is to go into a hospital and give birth. They have a different perspective on it as a partner. Uh, and I think that has an impact. And 
to see yesterday the Oireachtas Women's Caucus turn out from every single political party and independents as well and to take the words of women about the impact of these restrictions to physically hold the scroll and then to carry it through the gates of the doll was so hugely symbolic for women supporting women. And it does make a difference. And that is why we need more women in politics. And it, you know, it one of the moments of this campaign that has always really stayed with me is when we first met the Oireachtas Women's Caucus, it was the first time in a year of this campaign where we didn't have to actually fight to explain the lived experience of these restrictions. Yeah. And like, I don't think I can explain in this podcast how actually important that is, because in every other meeting we have, whether it's with the HSC or with other senior male politicians, we are constantly having to do the soul bearing. We are constantly having to tell the sad stories, to, to relive the trauma, to try and get them to understand just how important it is that they make this issue go away, like that they fix it for people. But with the Oireachtas Women's Caucus, we didn't have to do that. They knew instantly the impact. And that's why they've taken this on in the way that they have. There's just to me, and like I must be a total optimist at heart, Sue, that I keep throwing myself into campaigns like this. But to me, there was just, there is something really transformative about that. Yeah, yeah. Because I think um, women across Ireland are just... I definitely feel like when I was in hospital the first time after I had Julia that anything I asked for or anytime I pressed the bell or anytime, you know, I complained about anything that I was inconveniencing someone, that I was somehow putting somebody out by what I was doing. And it was for me, for this podcast, I had said at the start today, if one woman walks into that hospital knowing she has the right to ask for her partner, to ask for care, to say that what the care that she's receiving is not good enough, that that is exceptional. Like, and I, I feel like in the last month or so, from some of the stories that you've been sharing, from some of the po- the podcast emails, from some of the texts that people have started to go, I'm not, I'm just not putting up with this anymore. Like there was one you were talking about the other day that was like a, a woman who kept emailing somebody until she got an answer on her partner. And that is so powerful. Like that's what's going to change things is people on the ground going, I can't, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this anymore. Absolutely. And it's it's one of the reasons why we have looked, you know, around this whole compliance issue, right? And I hate talking about the compliance piece because it's a red herring. Um, It absolutely is. But one of the reasons why we have asked that there be uh, a complaints process for people is that when you complain in the health service, you get things done. And a lot of people don't want to complain about the people Mm -hmm. who are providing their care. Like that is an understandable fear that people have. So to have another avenue where people can actually raise their concerns in real time has always been really important to us. But to be honest, we shouldn't need it because if the actual national guidelines are appropriate and if they provide the service in a safe way and if they allow for an unrestricted access for one nominated support partner, we don't need to talk about compliance. 
because that would just we would go back to the norm in hospitals and I think that's really important and like for people who've been following us along and have um been with us you know maybe for a week or maybe five or maybe 10 months whatever it is the compliance issue is always a red herring. So like Stephen Donnelly talking yesterday about compliance, that's him, him with his magician's hat saying, look over here, look at me say these nice things about compliance so that you're not looking at the campaign on this end. And I don't know why I'm making hand signals to you on the camera, <laughs> um, Sue, because nobody can see those on the podcast. But they're trying to distract from the fact that their national policy still today on the 7th of October still separates women from their partner in the early stages of labor. It still excludes partners from every single antenatal appointment you have, and it severely restricts access to wards in the NICU. So hospitals can be compliant all they want, but those things will still be true. Yeah. And it's really, really important that people recognize that because I get messages all the time from people to say, oh, you know, my hospital is saying they're compliant, but they've told me that until I have a vaginal exam to establish I'm four centimeters, he won't be let in. And I'm like, yeah, that actually is what the HSC defines as compliant. So if you're compliant, Stephen Donnelly, and let's actually get to a place whereby the national guidelines allow for people to have a nominated support a nominated support partner with them for every aspect of their maternity care and then we'll be in business yeah last question before i let you go where do we go from here because it feels like to me it feels like we've done well i'm not we you've done (laughs) and the better maternity care group have done so much so far and when are they going to start listening what's our next plan so we are still engaging with the hsc around the roadmap for maternity so there is currently a draft of correspondence strongly worded after the last meeting uh going back to them looking for a meeting and to discuss how we move forward on the roadmap and there's a number of pieces to that. Um, like we discussed last week, you know, they're using inaccurate information around vaccination statistics and we don't know what other parameters they're using. And my sense is maybe they haven't clearly defined them either. So we want to get those um we want to actually flesh out that discussion with them. So watch this space on that. And I might even by the next time we sit down to record, I might even have a date for when that next meeting is. Um, is my hope that we'll we'll be doing that by the end of October Um, because we're all very conscious of the fact that from the 22nd of October people think everything is lifting and that is absolutely a lot of people believe the maternity restrictions are lifting on the 22nd of October and when I tell them that's not the case they get really upset understandably and the other piece as well is that the Oireachtas Women's Caucus have indicated to us that they are going to seek each hospital to come and meet with them to explain themselves <laughs> and I'm think. all for that mm-hmm. I'm fully supportive of that action from the Oireachtas Women's Caucus so we're going to try and support them in that process as well so those are those are the um, two Next pieces steps. but I think for now I think you know we're we're just going to enjoy this moment of I think the biggest thing that struck me from yesterday is that everybody who's been involved in this campaign 
came together and everybody stood, everybody who stood there in the rain yesterday in Dublin was standing there for somebody else as well. Yeah, They were standing there for, you know, people who couldn't get there because they're heavily pregnant. Somebody messaged me to say, my waters have gone. I can't make it today. <laughs> I was like, that's absolutely fine. Um, and uh, so everybody who was there yesterday was standing for somebody else. And just to see, like, we were trending number one, uh, number one and number five on Twitter last night. Uh, that was the immense support that came from all corners of the country. And so I think we just really need to just take a moment to hold that moment because that is really special. Yeah, it's really important. Um, just for your any of your stories, we're still asking you to get in touch at maternity at goloudnow.com if you'd like to tell your story. And thank you to everyone who's been sharing your stories. We've been sharing snippets of them on our, our social media channels and they're heartbreaking um, at some points they're uplifting because women are just amazing and powerful and will, will not be lying down anytime soon and thank you so much for speaking for everyone yesterday Linda and to Amy and to uh, Sarah and to Emma everyone who spoke for people who couldn't be there it was so important this week's story is James Keating and James is going to tell us about his experience within the maternity hospital just five weeks ago when his wife gave birth to their son, Fox. It was a difficult pregnancy for her, difficult delivery. And James was unfortunately left outside while his wife was very ill um, and battled for her life. Um, obviously, he was quite concerned about how she was and was kicked out of the hospital 20 minutes later. I think it really speaks about the helplessness of a lot of partners um, a lot of people who have been left outside wondering how their wife is um, anxiously walking streets not being able to go to cafes or restaurants uh, worrying about what's happening to their child and to their partner and how concerned they are that they should be there I think James story probably speaks to a lot of people and speaks for a lot of people I'm James. Um, I live in Bray and I work for an American company, so I work from home, um, which uh, makes things a little bit easier <laughs> with the baby coming along. But um, yeah, uh, first time parent as well. So this is our first child. So yeah, we went through kind of the IVF process and did, we didn't actually do IVF in the end, but we didn't really expect this to actually happen and work out. So we're, yeah, obviously we're absolutely thrilled about that part of things. I, my experience of of healthcare, I feel like is so different as a man. And I've seen that even when I go pick up her prescription from the pharmacy, I get asked a million questions. If I go pick up a prescription from the pharmacy, they're like, oh yeah, ground, whatever. They don't care. It's very strange that to be like uh, to see that different treatment. I've seen her have the same kind of treatment. Um, I, I go into hospital, I get, you know, I get looked after perfectly. I'm told everything. Um, when I did my back in, it was, I was given every possible scenario for what might happen to me. And she wasn't even told when she'd be giving birth to her baby. And again, like, I, I'm sure my situation was less complicated than hers. And there aren't two lives at stake. There were no lives at stake. I just hurt my back really badly. They were still talking me through all the potential things of, like, you might be paralyzed. You might, this might happen. This might happen. They still went through it in such detail and took such time. And I don't get why somebody in that, in her situation, wasn't given that time, wasn't given that attention. And that's either, is it, is it their own, you know, if they're understaffed or whatever it is, it's, it shouldn't be that way. And I'm sure the doctors don't think it should be that way either. I mean, she was just in a crappy situation and not getting the information. And I, I just hated that. I hated being 
outside that as well and not being able to do anything to help and being just powerless and, you know, feeling like I want to, to go in, I want to take the sadness and pain away and I can't, I just can't do a damn thing. When I arrived, they sent, I walked in and they were like, oh, you're here for the birth, go get scrubbed up, get, get in there, get going. She'd asked, uh, Laura had asked to delay and they just said, no, it had to happen right now. So out of nowhere, out of a, after a whole 24 hours of deliberating, suddenly there was, there was, this was happening. I am getting scrubbed up and I'm walking into the room and she's already had her epidural. She's like lying down on the, the operating table. There's a big screen over her lower half. So I can't see what's going on. They guide me carefully around it. So I can't see that she's already been cut open and I'm put in this little tiny chair between, uh, the heart and blood and everything monitor and the operating table and the, the screen itself. And it is the tiniest space. It's like, and it's a little stool, like, you know, the kind of drummer would use the, um, the tiny like, little drum throne stool, one of those kind of things. And it's just such a small space. I'm trying to hold her hand and I can barely move for all the machines and the, and the stuff going on. I mean, you know, it's a space is at a premium with like, there's a, it's a big room, but the center is so everything's concentrated so much around her. So, um, there's wires on the floor and everything. And I'm nearly tripping up trying to walk around the room. It's very awkward. And she, uh, and, and it feel, it's a complete blur until the baby comes. Like she's just lying there half awake, half asleep. Um, the anesthetist is being very nice, nice, nice. I think he was English. He had an English accent. He was nice, very, very gentle, like explaining to me what's going on. Um, so he's really good. And he was talking to her because she was getting a bit upset through it. Um, just like wanted want to know where where what was going on where the baby was the baby coming everything was everything okay and then a few minutes later up pops a baby over the screen screaming and crying and and i like we're like yep good cool he's serious oh god he's real oh no oh he's okay and every emotion that you can think of just floods out of you mostly fear um you know most <laughs> um and then they they cut the cord, they do all the things they need to do. They move him over to the little uh, heat lamp incubator thing. And they tell me, you can stand beside that while we finish um, stitching up Laura and cleaning up and doing all that stuff. And she starts screaming, absolutely screaming um, in pain. And she's starting to feel things too soon. And the anesthetist is talking to her and asking, you know, do you want more medication? Are you, you know, are you okay? Do you need more pain medication? Do you need me to put you to sleep for a few minutes? And she's trying to figure that out and asking to see the baby. So um, somebody grabs the baby and puts it on top of her. I go back and sit beside her and she is screaming and her heart rate is going high and her blood pressure is going low. And I know what those two things mean. And I know the anesthetist knows what those things mean because he's looking at the thing too and his eyes are widening. And I know they all know what they're doing and everything, but it was definitely a panic panic mode for them because I hear the surgeon from behind the screen saying, five minutes, it's going to be five minutes, don't worry, five minutes. And he is, and he, he was good. I mean, like she, obviously no one expects her to start suddenly feeling pain like that. Um, and it's really frightening. And they want me out of the room, but the person who's supposed to lead me out of the room and everything uh, has gone into another room to check on someone else. So I'm just... I'm just standing by this heat lamp, staring at the baby who's been moved back over and hearing her screaming in pain and hearing the vacuuming sound. You know, the, they suck the blood out with the vacuum during that. And I know it's all normal. I've had an operation. I know these things are fine and normal. But when she's screaming in pain and you can hear the monitors beeping and you hear the baby crying in front of you and the heat lamp is so, so hot that you're stripping sweat. 
absolutely dripping sweat and you just want i just wanted to either be out of there or have her out of there or something and oh and i tried to walk away with the baby and almost tripped over a wire and they were like well you do not walk with the baby in the in the operating cleaner i was like why am i holding the baby how did i end up holding the baby i don't remember even picking up the baby what is going on um I'm a mess, absolute mess, and watching my wife <laughs> thinking, oh no, she's going to die. Um, she's going to shock, and they are taking too long to finish the operation. And I finally, they usher me out of the room, they finish everything up, and she gets wheeled out a few minutes later um, into the recovery room, and she's fine-ish. She's still very, she's not like dosed up on enough anesthetics and pain and pain medication, all that stuff, but I'm... Um, so she's not super coherent about everything, but she's very much like wants to hold a baby, wants to do skin to skin, all of that. And it's lovely and it's nice. And there's a nice nurse there and she's lovely and she's talking to her and she wasn't in the operating room or anything. So she's just, you know, doing all the normal things, a few checks. And all I do the whole time is go in and out of the room to get water. There's a, in the corridor outside the recovery room, there's a water dispenser and Laura's just asking me to go, can you get me some more water? And I go get it and come back and she drinks it one gulp. Can you get me some more water? So I spend the entire time just going back and forth and back and forth getting water. Finally get to do skin skin with the baby. Very quick. Baby goes back to Laura. And then they asked me to fi- find her bags because because it was an emergency C-section. She was brought into a public ward. And we'd gone for semi-private. So she was going to move to a different room. So I had to move the bags around. And that is and our, uh, that is a complaint of privilege, I think, to be able to say, oh, it was crap that I had to go find these bags and move them because we were in the nicer room. I know that's not really a complaint, but I was still very confused and didn't know where I was going or anything. So it's just a little bit awkward. Um, so she's, um, she's still kind of not like, she's not quite with it yet because of the, all the medication and everything, but she's obviously, she's very happy. The baby, everything seems okay. At that point, um, the, the, the surgery's over. Everything's okay. We're all, we're, we're, we'll, we'll be fine. And I remember really, like really clearly going into the room to take the scrubs off and talking to the guy going in to see his baby be delivered and he had he had a kid already and i thought oh that's okay he'll be fine but he hadn't seen it and he didn't know what to expect and he was very nervous and i think i must have given him the absolute fright of his life because i'd say i was white as a sheet and he was saying oh how did it go and I, yeah you know this was fine everything's grand no it looks great yeah oh it's beautiful miracle of life uh yep <laughs> good luck buddy oh poor guy um i saw him sitting inside there i was going back out of the room here so i'm sitting in his, his he's all scrubbed up sitting inside the delivery room with his head in his hands and i just gave him a little meek thumbs up like, yeah it's gonna be okay oh god <laughs> oh yeah so i was absolutely terrifying oh, we we finally finally after all that gets it back up to the room um back up to, and <laughs> Um, she, Laura's in, in a bed, she's strapped to a million wires. If she moves at all, the wires go off. So she can't even like the baby starts crying. She can't touch him. She can't move. She has to call for help. And a nurse is there and she says, can you, or midwife or somebody or a doctor? I don't know. Everyone wears the same clothes. I, I just, I just take a wild guess to what job they have. They could, they could literally be anything. And they could be a random person off the street in scrubs because they just, it's all a blur <laughs> at this point to me. I'm sure she introduced herself, but I hadn't a clue. Um, but she was very nice and she helped me change the baby and Laura was in bed, kind of like not quite asleep, not quite awake still, um, kind of recovering. I changed the baby. I can't change his clothes. I can't, he's too small. I, his little onesie doesn't fit him. I'm all hands. She's helping me. I feel very awkward. And that takes about maybe 15 minutes and she leaves and 
then Laura can't find her phone because I know I have to leave in a few minutes. And she's really upset. And she's like, it's in one of the bags. And she's trying to get out of the bed. I'm like, Do not get out of the bed. You've just had surgery. We wake up the person in the next bed trying to figure this out. And I can't find the phone. And she's obviously very upset because if we can't, if she can't get her phone, she can't contact me at all from inside the hospital. She's totally cut off. So I'm digging around and digging around. I know there's, they told me 20 minutes. It's been 15. I know there's a time limit on this and we're both freaking out. She can't look through her bags on her own. And it's the middle of the night as well. This is like 4am or something. Um, and I finally find it at least, but it's basically as soon as I found the phone and gave it to her, they came in to say that I had to go until visiting hours started at 10am the next day. And that was it. That was, that was the experience with the baby. And a thing I didn't know at the time was that Laura had been told the baby might be transferred to a different hospital, might have to go to Hollis Street or the Coombe because there wasn't enough space if he had to go to the intensive care unit. And I didn't know at all that I might have to go to a different hospital and nobody told me that. So I was just completely in the dark to the fact I might have to rush back in and, t- and follow the baby to Hollis Street or wherever. So we didn't really know what on earth was happening between us both. We had half the information, I guess. Um, I mean, total, I mean, we both had about 25%, I would say. So we were able to put it together to at least something, but she was, uh, she was really upset when I was leaving. Cause she was like alone with a brand new baby, not able to move, having just had surgery alone in a room, um, a dark room at night with like, you know, still in that kind of half sleepy state where you still have your, you sort of all your, uh, social ticks and norms are working against you where you don't want to make noise because you don't want to wake someone around you, but you do need to make noise because you need someone to come in and help you if you need help, but your brain isn't quite able to put all of that together in the right way because you're just after you've just had a really traumatic event and it's still on drugs and medication and everything. And yeah, very weird and stressful and upsetting. So, and then I'm completely detached from all of it suddenly i'm just like like ripped out of it uh, i'm sure the baby felt the same about being ripped out of things but you know he i guess he had it worse um but i'm pulled from the situation in the back seat of my car and i think i'm trying to figure out if i can sleep i'm not really able to I just have a bit of a cry for i don't know how long um just miserable um like i'm glad the baby is there i'm glad he has come i'm absolutely terrified of the entire experience i've just had i've like nobody's there to say everything's okay. No one's there to say, Hey, you saw your wife just have a very traumatic experience. Are you okay? Are you like, do you need to sit down? Do you need a glass of water? Nobody's there. There's nothing. It's just, is the baby okay? We check the baby. You're, you're all fine. Off you go. You'll, you'll be grand. So I'm just sitting in the backseat of my car. Um, and I haven't cleaned it in months. And it's a weird detail to, to add, but I didn't clean it in ages. So because I had done my back in, I wasn't really using it. COVID, I wasn't really driving anywhere. So it was like quite dusty. And I felt like I could felt myself choking up on the on the dustiness of the back of the car. And I just felt really sick then. And I thought I was going to get sick in the back of the car. Um, but I didn't. I just cried a lot. And then I got a text. I couldn't sleep. I just sat there. And I was trying to text Laura and ask her if she's okay. Couldn't really just couldn't really call her. Um, this was the middle of the night and all. Um, so I was trying to text her and ask her if she was okay. And a few hours later, she tells me the baby's gone to the intensive care unit. Still don't get to go back in. It's, I think it was about half six in the morning. She's barely seen him. I've barely seen him. We're not allowed to see him again till I'm not allowed to see him till 1 p.m. I think it was the next day. I'm allowed to see her at 10. And I just have to sit and wait. So from about half six 
to 10 a.m. I'm just sitting in the back of the car waiting. No sleep, obviously, because I'm too upset and too worried. I don't know why the baby's gone to the intensive care unit. They took him suddenly. Um, they said he was, oh, what was it? I can't even remember. Something something to do with breathing or something. I don't know. Just some some reason they came and took him took him away, and he was off the, off he went while Laura was still kind of half asleep, and I was not there. So no idea. No idea why what what's going on. No idea if he's going to be okay. No idea what I'll see when I go down there. Um, and no idea at all, even like, I didn't even know at this point what the intensive care visiting hours were. I did all I knew was that I could go see Laura at 10. Um, so I was really, really, I was just so worried about both of them. I was like, after watching Laura go through that surgery and just it go, I don't want to say it went wrong. A surgeon, obviously the surgeon came and talked to us later. He was a very competent guy. He was very nice. He clearly knew what he was doing. She just felt pain before she should feel pain. And I don't, that happens and that's okay. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like that and it doesn't feel okay. So it, at the, at the time I was just too busy being terrified and traumatized to, to kind of like, you don't get a chance to process that and sit down and think, okay, they've, they, we've gone through this. It'll be okay. Instead of that, it's, well, we've gone through that. Now there's something else. And after, the pregnancy being full of that kind of thing. It's just one sad, scary thing to another sad, scary thing. And you're so like, one of us is in the thick of it. That's Laura. She's just, she's in the trenches. She's going to everything. She's like taking all the bad news. She's taking everything on the chin. She's taken, she's taken the brunt of everything. She's had the surgery. She's delivered the baby. She's carried him. She's dealt with all the problems, all the regular problem stuff with pregnancy, all the, like the sickness and the tiredness and the fatigue and the sore back and the sore legs and all of that, all of that normal stuff. And it's just this just layers of problems. And now he's in the intensive care unit and I have, I have no idea what that means. No information, nothing. And I go see Laura at 10 a.m. And we were both so tired. And I sit down in the chair beside her bed and I'm I'm nodding off. I haven't slept since like two days before. And she hasn't really slept either. And we're both too tired to deal with it. Just way too tired. Um, and I want to do something to help. I don't know how. And we're both just in bits at this point. Like, we're not. We're, we're upset with the situation. We're angry at the situation. We're just miserable. I just wanted to be with each other through all of that. That shouldn't be, that's not something you should have to go through alone. No one should have to go through that alone. Like I have the easy part. I could, I might, I was lying in the back of the car. I can get out. I can go for a walk. I can go to the shop. I can go to a cafe when they're open. That's easy. Like she just had misery, total isolation in the hospital and misery. And I couldn't, I just couldn't do anything. And I don't know. I think that's like, I don't know. Like if that compulsion to help, you can't, when you can do nothing, it just feels like it just feels very, you feel very useless. Um, and I, there's nothing I could have done if it was a normal situation anyway, but just being there is something and I couldn't even do that. Um, so when I do go to see her, all we do is wonder what like is going to go on, going on down at the, the intensive care and she gets to go see him. He's okay. Ish. He's there a bit worried, but he's, uh, he's probably okay. He's in an incubator. And I go to go see him and I go down. I don't know what's going on. I asked the receptionist where to go. She assumes I already know. Um, I realized after, after a few days that they, that because people spend a bit of time going down there, that they get very used to it. So they kind of like, it's, 
it's probably rare that someone doesn't know what's going on. It would have been nice to just get some information about it. Like, um, didn't even know what room to go into. Went to the wrong room, wandered around aimlessly looking for a baby that wasn't there. Well, there's just a lot of wrong babies. Um, so I probably just disturbed a bunch of people who are also worrying about their sick children. <laughs> um, I found them in the incubator and just sat there. And finally, a, a nice nurse came over and kind of like talked to me a little bit about it and wasn't able to pick him up or anything just yet. Wasn't able to hold him, just stared at him, just sat there wrecked tired confused sad stared at him i think i took a photo of him in an incubator and I go, everything's gone great <laughs> yay um yeah so he was okay though in the like, he was he was okay and kind of that was fine but then i just had to go home and that was every day for nine days was just go in hope everything's okay and because of the way the visiting hours work, Laura, and because Laura's um, expressing to feed the baby, I would get to see him for maybe 30 minutes a day. I'd go in, do a feed, do a change, leave, so Laura could spend the time there. She was stuck there. That was her thing to do for the day, was to go down and be with the baby during the time, when on the time she could see him. So I tried to spend time with her, but realistically, I'd end up just sitting on her bed while she was in the NICU, the intensive care, um, waiting for her to come back. So just complete, there was this weird separation because we're not allowed to go in together. So I just swap with her. So instead of visiting her, I was visiting an empty bed. Um, and and the visiting areas are awkward because they were, there was a huge gap between them. And I just stayed all day. I took time off work and everything so I could, you know, be there when the baby's born at home. I would have assumed at home, but instead it was a lot of time spent in cafes between visits, a lot of time sitting around worrying about the baby in the intensive care and worrying about Laura and yeah, waiting to see what would happen next. And if any other problems will come up and you kind of get used to hearing problems, you kind of get used to hearing bad news and we're still, still here. He's come home. He's after nine days or after, after five days, Laura came home. So we were ended up, we would be driving in together and able to see him very little. Um, like she would go in, spend the bulk of the time there. I'd I'd go in for an hour. Um, so it was still just kind of separate, just in a different way. Um, and it's just not, it's not normal to not have both parents go visit a baby in that situation. As I remember sitting in there with the baby at one point as a couple came in, absolutely distraught. The mother was saying, like, had lost a child before and she was crying and she's asking if she was going to lose her baby. And the whole time they were telling the dad just to leave instead of, you know, anybody saying it's going to be okay, sit down, your baby's fine. That came after they spent, I think, five minutes telling the guy, the poor guy to leave. And he didn't want to leave because he was so upset. And it's just not right that he, you know, he's not, it's not that he's not part of it just because he didn't give birth to the baby. And I am fully aware that the woman does a lot more work in that situation, but it's still a two person job, especially after the baby comes. Um, then it's fully about both parents. It's like, and every time I go to the intensive care unit, I'd see that the, the same, all the parents are doing the same thing. We were, you'd see the dad come in for a little while, swap out and the mother would come in and all. And, and that was, that was, the whole experience and it was people standing in corridors waiting to swap and same sitting up in empty sitting like dads sitting on hospital beds and empty that were empty waiting for their partners to come back up and just nobody happy none of the 
none of what you'd expect from a maternity ward. Um, it's like I've been to visit people who've had babies and it's all balloons and bears and flowers and happiness and smiles and family. And I get not allowing family and I get keeping things limited, but like it's two parents, not one. <laughs> you know, not in everyone's circumstance, but in most in most cases, you know. Um, so if it's, very, it's a very, instead of it being this lovely, nice time, it's just really lonely, the whole thing for both of us. Um, That's it for this week. Before we go, we want to say a thank you to all the amazing frontline healthcare workers who've worked so hard through this pandemic and keep looking after the women who are on those maternity wards by themselves. We'll be talking to some of them across the series about their experiences and the pressures they face supporting women in the most vulnerable of circumstances and in the most challenging time. Ultimately, the only people who should be held to account here are the government. And as always, we asked today's guests what they'd like to say to the Taoiseach and Minister for Health if they could. We leave you with their thoughts on that. If the society is opening back up, if we are supposed to be allowed to do things again, and I get that a clinical setting is slightly different, but I think it at least means that you could check if the patients are vaccinated. You could check if the both parents are vaccinated. You could do something and tell the hospitals that they need to actually consider that the role of the partner is more than just the person who happens to be there for some visits. It is not only that. It is it is as a, basically as an emotional support for the person going through. And extremely, no matter how joyful the end result is, it is and can be an extremely traumatic part of your life. And taking away someone's emotional support for that is extremely de- detrimental to their mental health, to their well-being. So if you're talking about their health, keeping everyone healthy, you're not healthy if you don't, like, you're not healthy mentally, then you're not healthy. So why on earth are we taking that away when, like, we're both vaccinated. We don't need to be, we shouldn't be worrying about this stuff still um, in the same way we have been. And I get why it was happening before, but why are the hospitals making it? I don't get why the hospitals are making it. Sorry, if I want to say something to them, why are the hospitals making decisions that government leaders should be making, that the HSE are supposed to be there to make. Not the hospitals themselves, not some board who make a decision like that, you know, based on just what the information they have. But why aren't why where where are the where's the leadership taking all the information we have about COVID, all the information we have across society about vaccinations, as opposed to just letting the hospital do whatever they fancy and leaving patients out in the cold because of it and leaving partners to just not experience their birth of their child to take that experience from them because the hospital just decide to just some level honestly some leadership in terms of saying we are opening back up society if fifty four thousand people can go to croke park two parents can visit their child in an intensive care unit remember if you do have any stories we're at maternity at goloudnow.com please send in your stories to us and we'll share as many as we can on social media and if you need any updates on the Better Maternity Care, it's under hashtag Better Maternity Care online across all social media platforms. Thank you and see you next week. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bower Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com. 
and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.